All right, so Matthew chapter 4. That's what happens. It's new things and brain all over the place this morning. Um, Matthew chapter 4 today, the hard and easy path. Um, I just want to say this. I love that hymn. That, that is a good, good song. So um, thank you, music team, both for finding that and for um, ministering to us that way this morning. Joining Matthew now as he continues to, to roll into his sermon about Christ. Uh, we have two sections here of verses at the end of chapter 4 that really give you almost an, a sort of outline, a preview outline of the next multiple chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. And so I'm going to read those in just a minute. But by way of introduction this morning, we want to talk about the hard and the easy path, how following Christ is unbelievably difficult, but also shockingly easy. And how can we hold those tensions together at the same time? Uh, those of you who've been around me long enough to know that I have very wide-ranging music tastes, and I'm unashamedly a fan of the Beatles song, The Long and Winding Road. Um, some of you know that, some of you don't know that song. You, you probably would know it more than you realize. Uh, it's such a mournful tune. Paul McCartney wrote it um, while he was thinking about the road that led to his this Scottish, I don't know, semi-castle that he had bought. But he wrote the song as the Beatles were nearing the end and about to break up. And so it's a very mournful tune of a long and winding road. And, and it has this idea of life's paths that are very difficult, but they also have some kind of hope to them. And it could reference going out of a season of relationship or a season of relational loss or job loss or what have you. I was uh, talking to a couple this morning. They were talking about registering their child for kindergarten next year. And, and it's just a weird season. And it feels like uh, childhood is ending in some ways. We're, we're on the other end of that spectrum of getting our son ready for college. And these seasons, some of you have gone through retirement or faced it or health or what have you. And this mindset of something that seems mournfully a loss, but also holds within it some kind of hope. I think it actually can help us think about what, what we will read this morning. And when Christ calls people to follow him, it is a call to an astoundingly hard, but also shockingly easy path. We're, we're being introduced to the King of Kings, to King Jesus here this morning. And somehow we're going to go from chapter 4 to the end of Matthew. And we're going to go from all these prophecies of fulfillment. Here is the King that God has been telling you about for literally thousands of years. And we're going to rapid fire, if you think about it, to his death on a cross. How in the world do we get from all of this glory to all of the sorrow and suffering that is to come? And so in preparation for that, Matthew has these two sections at the end of chapter 4. And you could think of it this way. How does the king really arrive and build this kingdom? This kingdom that largely the world is going to reject and yet is still growing and increasing. And so he does it two ways. He does it through his words and through his works. It's how the king assembles a kingdom to himself. And the words we're going to see is introduced to that here in verses 17 through 22. And then chapters 5 through 7 kind of explode that out even more. And so he's like, let me, let me give you a taste. This is how the king operates. Is he operates through his word. 
And then let me give you an example of it. But then it's not just his word. It is his works. It's the things that he does. And you will see that in verses 23 through 25 with great crowds and miracles. And then he'll pick that back up in chapters 8 through 9. And I think it's just helpful to understand some of the structure that he is going to do. He will pick up when we finally get there. And actually, if you just keep your finger at chapter 5 and, or chapter 4 and go all the way forward, you, you can actually see this where he picks up in chapter 10, very first verse, and he called to him his 12 disciples. And so we're going to go from calling of these four to these calling of the 12. There's all kinds of things that Matthew is skipping to get there. But I just want you to understand that it's almost like this bookend moment and what is going on in the middle and in the meantime so that you process through exactly what Matthew is doing here. This is what he says in Matthew chapter 4. I'm going to pick up in verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. This call, this moment in their lives and in the life and the ministry of Christ shows such a massive transition. This unbelievable moment of this is what we were doing and who we are with and now this is going to be the rest of our life it's not easy they're going to leave a lot behind in order to follow the king and so i want us to understand this morning that following the king is the hardest and the easiest thing you could ever do but it's also the best thing you could ever do and ultimately i want to ask the question as we work our way through this and unpacking this where are you in your journey with the king where are you in this season of your life, at this moment in your life, what is it like for you? And how are you working through that and understanding it? And so to get there, let's, let's just look first at what Jesus does for them. And really what he does is he makes a, a claim on their very soul in this moment. Now, Matthew and Mark's account of this moment, this occasion, is very similar. Uh, Mark is actually even briefer than what Matthew says here. But Luke gives us a lot more information and context. Uh, just a, a significant amount of detail for us. And so in one way, we want to be honoring of what Matthew's doing because we're preaching through Matthew, not through Luke. At the same time, you, you will fail as a believer if you study the Gospels and you just try to stick in one only and not fill in some of the pieces from the other Gospels. I just want to encourage you, anytime you're personally studying through Gospel, make sure you are reading some of those companion texts to understand or get a, the fullest picture. And so we don't want to preach Luke's version, but his details can help us a little bit to understand even more of what is happening here and to fill in some blanks. And it really, even what Matthew leaves out becomes important to us because it points to what Matthew is trying to do here. And so the first thing I want us to understand is it starts back in verse 17 for Matthew. Matthew is laying out to us this idea of repent and believe. The words of the king... And the mission of the king are inseparable. What I mean by that is 
is you can't come to the life of Christ and simply like what he does without intaking what he says and wrestling with it. So you can't, come to, <clears throat> you can't come to the life of Jesus and say, I like that he heals the blind and makes the lame walk, and I like that he stands up for the poor and the dispossessed, and I like how he pursues sinners and Pharisee or publicans and how he stands up against the scribes. I like all that about Jesus, but I don't want to deal with his making his claims on my life and saying things like, repent, you're a sinner. You need to turn away from it. You cannot separate his words and his mission or what he is doing. Our world wants to do that with Christianity all the time. They would want things like um, sending uh, aid to, to areas where, that have been ravaged by some natural disaster. And so a flood is hit or wildfire or tsunami. And, and so they would love that Christians would gather together and send people and goods to help to recover that. But how dare you proselytize us? We want your mission, but not your words. You can't do that with Jesus. You, you don't have the luxury of saying, I want what he does, his mission, but I don't want his words. The first thing he calls people to do, including these four, is repent. Because his kingdom is here. It's the same sermon that John the Baptist preached. It's the same sermon that the apostles themselves will preach. Peter in Acts 2.38 will say this. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 3.19, Peter again preaches this. Repent therefore, turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Repentance is at the very core foundational level of the gospel itself. You cannot be saved and be unrepentant. Repentance is a gift from God. 2 Timothy 2.25 tells us, as Paul is writing to Timothy, dealing with, uh, frankly, heretics in the life of the church and people who are argumentative, Paul tells Timothy, deal with them gently, deal with them graciously, stand for the truth, but don't get embroiled in their conflicts, that God may grant them Repentance. Repentance is a gift of God given to people that is then born out in fruits. To be a follower of King Jesus is to be one who is turning from their sins and trusting and following in his righteousness. You are not a Christian if you are not repentant. Repentant at your conversion over all that you are and living a life of repentance from that point forward is the only way that is demonstrable that I am a follower of Christ. It's more than just your words. He tells us to look for fruits of repentance. He tells us false teachers, people who lie about their standing with God. He says that, that look for their fruits. By their fruits you shall know them. It's a foreshadowing of the entire Sermon on the Mount. We're confronted with the words of the king later in the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, where he tells us that unless our righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, we cannot enter into heaven, Matthew 5.20. That's a shocking statement for his audience to hear because they think of these guys as the righteous ones. Here's all the list of rules and obligations that I follow, and, and I don't just follow, want to follow the Ten Commandments. I want to follow all the rest of the law and all of our additions to the law and the Mishnah and the, the little notes written in 
to accompany the law, I follow all these. And so I tithe the smallest of herbs and spices and, and, I, and I do all these things. And he says your righteousness has to exceed. How is that possible? Because the righteousness we need is Christ's righteousness. And so Matthew 5 through 7, the words will unpack in an increasing way what a life of repentance really looks like. To repent is to follow and obey. Now, the details that Luke gives us actually help us to uh, kind of understand that in an even tighter way. And so if you were to look at the same occasion in the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, it happens in Luke 5, in verses 4 through 8. Let me just read to us the, for us the, what happens here. Please turn in your Bibles. You can follow along there or on the screen. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon, saw, Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord." If your Bible, I don't know how your Bible is structured, but in my Bible, if, if you, when you get from verse 17 to verse 18, um, <clears throat> they, the translators, the, the, the publishers of the Bible, they put in a new paragraph and a new subheading here, Jesus calls the first disciples. And as, as English-speaking people and as readers, it would be common for us in reading to think of that as, oh, huge break. Matthew's not trying to do that. Matthew's flowing. Matthew's flow is intended to go from 17 to 18, this message of repentance. Now let me show you what applied to these first four people. Disciples of Christ are repentant followers, is what he's saying. And Luke is making that clear because what happens actually in this moment is Peter sees that he's sinful. This is a gospel moment for Peter. This is Peter saying, I, in your presence... And through the power and the force of your words and your works, my soul is being revealed. The Bible tells us that our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know them, right? The very next verse in Jeremiah says, I, the Lord, reveal the heart. That's how we know it. God reveals it. And he says all kinds of means to reveal it, but it is not uncommon for him to use trials in our life, difficult things in our life, persecutions in our life, uh, longing in a covenant way for the things of the world. He uses all kinds of ways to, to reveal our hearts. And sometimes, sometimes he uses his works, but primarily, listen now, he uses his word to do a work in our hearts. And it illuminates us. It opens our eyes. The Spirit does this profound work of opening our eyes to, to suddenly receive His Word. We see it now. We hear it now. He unplugs our deaf ears, and we receive it. And in this moment, that's what's happening with Peter and the other disciples here. To repent and believe is to follow and obey. Peter's response to the message of Christ is one of repentance. To call people to repent is to call them to belief. It is to stake a claim on their very soul. Your soul is messed up, and I'm making a claim on it. It's mine. That's what Jesus is doing here. You don't run your life anymore. You come over here. It's to turn from their sin and to believe on and in Christ. But he goes on from there, though, and he makes this statement, follow me. He doesn't just stop at repent 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 19, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. Kings, by their very nature, wield authority. Christ is no different as a king. He wields authority. What he says here is not a request, but a command. It's a sad but obvious reality that many today believe that they can separate somehow the message of repent and believe from follow me. That somehow there can be a place where I'm saved by Christ, but I don't follow Christ. That is a satanic heresy that leads people to hell itself. You, you, there's, no, there's no option. Well, let me sign the card. I don't know. Pray the prayer. I'm saved. I'm good. I'll figure out later whether or not I want to follow him. What would happen um, if you joined the military? My dad was, got his draft notice in 68, I believe, or maybe early 69. He went ahead and enlisted in the Army in 1969. Um, you go away to basic and they tell you what to do. They tell you what to wear. Um, it was winter. He was doing basic training in Fort Belvoir, New Jersey, and they made them sleep with the windows open. I don't know why. Uh, they thought it would help keep them from getting sick. So my dad a couple times woke up in basic training with snow on his blanket. Um, he loved the Army. Um, and he talked about this little uh, drill sergeant um, the guy was from, from Puerto Rico and he was like five foot two or three. And my dad said he was terrifying. He was like the Tasmanian devil. And when he got mad at you, he'd, he'd literally hop up and down. Um, the worst punishment my ever, dad ever got is because he was laughing because it was so comical watching him yell at somebody else. And, and I remember asking my dad, what happens if you don't do what they tell you to do? And my dad just looked at me, he's like, that's not an option. I'm like, yeah, but what would happen? He goes, you don't understand. That's not an option. And that's the reality. Like, if you enlist in the military, it doesn't matter what branch in an American military, if you enlist and you go away to basic and they tell you what to do and, and you don't do it, what happens? Like, you don't get to go wear the uniform, get your veterans' benefits, your, I don't know, your discounted Grand Slam at Denny's and your priority boarding at the airport. Yeah, but I don't listen to any orders. No, they kick you right out. You don't, you're not a part. You don't get to say, I'm, I, you know what? I'm on King Jesus' team. I just don't ever do what he says. I don't obey. I don't follow. It doesn't work that way. This is nonsensical. This is crazy. This is a trumped-up heresy that makes people feel good because they get to fill out lists of, I don't know, how many conversions they've had or how many baptisms they've had, but all they've actually produced is false converts who think because I prayed a prayer and asked Jesus to forgive me, I'm A-OK, but I don't have to follow him at all. Jesus puts a claim on our souls when he calls us to salvation. It's not fire insurance. It's that you obey. We can actually see it again with Peter. If we were to look at Luke's accounting of the same occasion, verse 9, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so they also, 
And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid from now on, you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. You can't get from verse 8, depart from me, I'm a sinful man, O Lord, and not end up at verse 11, leave everything and follow him. We have to ask ourselves the question at this point, where are you on your journey with the king? Yes, the question of have you seen that you're a sinful person? Have you turned from your sin to believe in Christ? But have you begun to follow him? Is a critical, so frequently lost moment. I've shared with you before, but in one conversation I had with another pastor about this very truth, I asked him, do you call people to follow Christ, to submit to him and follow him? And he said, no, not when I give the gospel. And I said, why not? Well, because that's a huge stumbling block. <laughs> Duh! And then he said this, and if they really do get saved, they'll end up doing that anyway. Can I just challenge us? That's not how Jesus gives the gospel. That's not how the apostles give it. Neither should. You need to understand that when you are sharing the gospel with someone... Jesus is saying, I'm staking a claim on your soul. I'm the king. So either you're with me or you're against me. And I know that's offensive. It's so offensive, they killed him over it. And Jesus, as the king, is being introduced to us by Matthew. And when he comes to this moment, he does not want us to be under any misconceptions whatsoever about what kind of king this is. And this is the kind of king that literally will call anyone to come be a part of the kingdom. The test of whether or not you get to receive the call has nothing to do with your intellect or your abilities or your attractiveness. It has nothing to do with all those other reasons all the teams out in the world might want you or reject you. Jesus will take the last kid picked to play, play kickball as much as the first kid picked. Jesus doesn't, he, he doesn't care what your sin is. He doesn't care what your past is. He doesn't care what your disability is. He doesn't, he doesn't care what, what your personality deficit is. He doesn't care what your height deficit is, what your weight is, what, what your appearance is, what the scars of your life emotionally and physical are. He calls you because he loves you, and he's, but he's staking a claim on you when he's calling you. He makes this call to these apostles, these disciples, and Matthew introducing it to us in this beautiful moment is telling us he calls people through his words, and his works are going to come up next. But the path that he's calling us to is a hard path. It really, really is hard. Now, what is a hard path, right? A, a tight, curvy road. Uh, I remember years back in my early 20s, um, going on a youth retreat as a youth sponsor, and they needed something, and uh, it was late at night, uh, close to 11, maybe, maybe even close to midnight. And I'll be honest with you, I was sick of being with these teenagers. They were annoying. Um, all these kids were from the inner city, west side of Baltimore. There was kids on this trip that had never seen a cow before in their life. 
I, I'm not kidding you. We we're up in Pennsylvania. We we're driving. We saw cows by the side of the road. They started to freak out in the van I was driving. And I'm like, what is going on back there? And they were like, they couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe that these animals were just being led to roam wildly. And so I pulled over so they could, we could get pictures with the cows, little throwaway cameras, right? These kids, I was done. I, you know, I was done. It's late at night. We need somebody to run to town, get something for the morning. I said, I'll do it. I volunteer. I go out. I get in, my, in, in the van or the car that I was borrowing, and I start to leave, and it is pitch black outside, unbelievably foggy. I could not see past the front of the vehicle, these tight, curvy roads with no street lights. It was terrifying. Hard paths can be that way. Or I think of the two-lane road in Guatemala coming down off a Guatemalan uh, mountain um, where, where, I'm just going to be honest with you, rules of the road seem optional in Guatemala. And like we're like, we created a third lane on a mountain road with no guardrail between 18-wheelers. We're just making our own path. I'm, I'm, I'm a trailblazer. I don't like to blaze that trail. I was ready to get out and walk. It was terrifying terrifying roads, hydroplaning, doing 70 miles an hour on I-95 between, I've been on some scary roads. This past summer, we were uh, on vacation in Georgia, and we were where Curahy is, made famous in Band of Brothers, where uh, Sobel would make the men run three miles up, three miles down Curahy. We didn't run it, we drove it. It was, it, it's, that thing's a beast, gravelly, nasty mountain. I don't know what kind of hard paths you've been on. You know, you know a hard path is being a caregiver? That's a hard path. It's exhausting, emotionally and physically and mentally, to be a caregiver. Uh, the, the patient gets lots of care. Caregivers get little care. It's just expected. And, and if you're struggling, then you must be selfish. And uh, if you're exhausted, well, you just need more endurance and, and caregiving is a hard path. A journey of a long-term debilitating disease is a hard path. Living daily with a diagnosis that you can't shake. Losing a job, a loved one, a relationship are hard paths. Everything from <clears throat> death to divorce to layoff are hard paths. How do we describe hard paths? How do we, how do we wrap our minds around it? Uh, because even in, in, in the reality of that, while there are some paths that would be hard for all of us, to be very honest, there are some paths that would be hard for you that would be easy for somebody else. Or paths that would be hard for me that would be easy for you. Like something that might feel like running Curahee or driving on this fog-filled, tight, dangerous road. It feels like where my life is at. And for you, the same circumstances would feel like you're running on a sunny plain. There's a complexity. And so what might be brutally difficult for one is not brutally difficult for others and so maybe we could describe them this way, whatever, whether it's individualistic to you or whether it's corporate. In other words, everybody would feel this way. Hard paths are always paths that involve death of some kind. Death is separation. It is death of a dream is a hard path. Death of a vision 
It's a hard path. Death of a ministry. It's a hard path. Death of a loved one. Death of health. Death. Death of a job. Death of an ability. I think of the man that I worked with at Shepherd's Home who had an earned doctorate and was a pastor of a church of over 400 and suffered a heart attack. And by the time they found him, he had been so, uh, his brain had been so deprived of oxygen that when he recovered, this father of three beautiful little girls, a brilliant academic, when he recovered, he was reduced to the mind of a six-year-old forever. That's a hard path, isn't it? There are hard paths. Death of the future, death to what we want. I think, I think you can think of hard paths being like death. The call to follow Jesus is a hard path. And his call here is going to make it clear because ultimately the call to follow Jesus, listen to me now, is death to you. And it's made hard in a couple of ways. First of all, this is a hard call. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he sees the two brothers. We know some of the details. He, he was walking, he was preaching, the crowds pressed in, he actually goes out in the boat. Simon, who's called Peter, Andrew's brother, casting net in the sea, for they were fishermen. He said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. They leave their nets immediately, it says. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. He sees the two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, Mending their nets, he called them immediately. They left their boat and their father and followed him. You know, C.S. Lewis, I think, helpfully pointed out how difficult the claims of Christ can be for us. He said that most people tend to approach life and morality a bit like we approach taxes. <laughs> I, I thought this is a great illustration. He said the way we approach taxes is we try to pay as little as possible so that we can have as much as possible left over to spend on me. I'm like, he ain't wrong. <clears throat> but it was, I think, so insightful to apply that to morality, right? Like, so we all are, we were, we were all raised in some kind of moral setting. Like, every, I really don't even, it doesn't even matter. Maybe you were raised by very immoral, ethic, unethical parents. I, does that, there was still some kind of moral, ethical code involved. And so the way most people approach the morality and the ethics of life, uh, think of things like the Ten Commandments, don't steal, don't lie, don't, don't murder, right? Don't, don't commit adultery, serve only God. And people tend to think of it as like, what's the bare minimum I can do and still be able to do what I want to do? What's the, what's the bare minimum? Okay, so um, <clears throat> I'm not going to steal something big. I'll just steal small things. Or I'm not going to kill somebody, but my word, you put your hands on me, I'm going to put my hands back on you. Um, I, I'm not going to full-blown go through adultery, but I'm going to sit back here and lust. In other words, what's the bare minimum of morality and ethics I can do that I can give to God and still live the life I want to live, still do what I want to do? And I think that's how most people, and I think C.S. Lewis is absolutely right, that's how most people think about following God. What's the bare number of times I can be um, in his word? What's the bare number of times I can pray? What's the, like, what's the bare, and we don't, maybe we don't think bare number, like we're not that intentional, but we are trying to live a life that's ultimately always trying to carve out space for me. 
Because we believe and are convinced that space for me is what is where my true joy and happiness and sense of satisfaction and fulfillment can be found. And God's robbing me of that. He's robbing me of time and of money and of resources and of energy. So what's the bare minimum I can give him to get him off my back and thereby be satisfied? But God, but Christ calls us for much more than that. I now quote from Lewis as he describes it this way. Give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self. In other words, to just rob from you reducing your happiness. Listen to this now. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent, as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. And I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself, my own will shall become yours. Now, Jesus never hides this reality. What does he say? He says, take up your cross daily and follow me. He says, deny yourself. He says, sell all and follow me. He says to another man, follow me and let the dead bury the dead. The call of the gospel and discipleship is a hard call. He says, drop your nets and follow me. He's calling these men in this moment as an outgrowth and as an expression of their call of the gospel and of now following him, discipleship. He is saying, leave your father, leave your livelihood right here. Being a fisherman was not impoverished. It wasn't wealthy. It's as close as you can think to middle class. It was a good living, particularly particularly on the Sea of Galilee by Capernaum. Because it's a massive trade route. These guys did okay. They work together. They've got friendships. They've got family. They've got a job. They've got a career. They've got, they got all this stability. And he says, follow. That is a hard call. While Jesus does not call in the gospel itself all of us to give up our careers or our family. There must be an absolute willingness for it because there is a relinquishing of the rights to it when you come to Christ. It's a hard call. I don't want to deny it. That is tough. Nobody explained it to me at nine years of age. I don't think my nine-year-old little mind and brain could have wrapped my mind around it. The best way I found to explain this to children is like, you're not Steve's kid anymore, you're God's kid. When you stand on the playground and you're deciding how are you going to respond to what's going on, it, it no longer is, what do I want to do? But what would God have me do? When you're making that decision about cheating or doing your homework or whatever, or obeying mommy and daddy, it stops being, what do I want to do? And it, it, it's, what does God want me to do? And you're not going to do it perfect. Nobody will because your name's not Jesus Christ. 
But it's an absolute willingness. If you're going to come to Jesus, it is a heart that says, but what Jesus wants for me, that's what I'm going to chase. When you get to be uh, a junior, senior in high school, and you're trying to figure out your future, the questions need to be, what would Jesus have me to do? That's not being a pastor, missionary, like, that's not necessarily that. It is an understanding of how has God made me? How has he wound me? How has he, how has he fitted me? And so what would he have me to do to invest my life? And that it's not like there's the peak call then of being in full-time ministry. No, but it's an understanding that says whatever God has for me, that's what he's, who am I going to be in a relationship? What does God have for me in this? It is a relinquishing of you. That is a hard call. And look, we're lying to one another if we act like that's easy. It's not easy. It's not just a hard call. It's a hard mission. He tells them to step away from fishing to become fishers of men. Again, while God does not require every follower to leave their vocation, the willingness to, the reality of Christ being in control of our lives is true for every believer. But on top of that, the mission he calls all of us to is the mission of sharing the gospel. That's hard. This is not easy. This first group, Simon, Peter, and Andrew are casting nets. This is a circular net. Uh, It has weights around it. They cast it out. It sinks down. And then another guy would dive in and grab it and help pull it up. That's how they fished back then. Uh, Then some, at some point, they would attach other lines to try to draw it back up to the surface. The second group is mending these kinds of nets. uh, And these are likely drag nets, nets that they would throw over the side of the boat or uh, extend out with boom arms. And as they would sail along, they would capture fish that way. And so that they were there fixing these nets. This is physical work. It's outdoor kind of work. It's dangerous because there's storms. It's dangerous because it's physically relenting. Uh, If you injure yourself, uh, think of the taxing uh, effort on their upper body and their strength. And if you you broke a collarbone or tore a rotator cuff, uh, it's going to be debilitating to your career. But it's also prosperous work. It's a good living. They know that we're going to go out today, and if we don't catch fish now, we'll catch them later. It'll come. I've been fishing here a long time. It's going to continue to happen. We've been doing this. This has been going on for hundreds of years. They've been raised by their dads to do it. They, they know what to do. And so now he's calling them to follow him in this commanding way and to be trained. He says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. I'm going to train you. And and I'm using language that you're going to understand. I'm going to train you to do this with that. It's not the same. Like, um, fish are fish. You throw a net. If you've got a school of fish and you throw a net, you grab that net, you got the fish. If you preach the gospel to people, you're throwing the net. And it's like every fish feels like has the chance to say, I don't want to be in the net. It feels a lot less prosperous. On top of that, there's a lot less to show for it. On top of that, they're going to kill you for it. Nobody who's coming to the Sea of Galilee hunting these guys down and say, let's kill the fishermen. But later, with each one of these guys, it is, let's kill the fishers of men. There's a hard mission here. The call of the king put upon them and ultimately put upon every one of us is to be a learner 
of Jesus. Being a learner is not the same as being a doer, but he wants us to learn so that we do. It is not God's designer's intention that we gather together on Sunday morning that you are entertained by a message or blessed by a message even, and then you go forth unchanged. But it is his intention, his design, that all of us be changed by his word, that as we look into the mirror of his word, it's revealed who we are, we see who we are, and by God's grace and the power of his spirit, he changes it. He's slowly changing us, first with whoever is up here speaking it, and then certainly for whoever is receiving it. He's calling these men to learn a very difficult mission, and then to be on this mission. Luke tells us that when he says this to him, they actually were exhausted. They had actually had the experience of working all night, toiling all night with no success. And so when Jesus does this miracle, it, it is telling them the only power to actually succeed in this is going to come from me. It's not in you. People coming to Christ is not based on our ability but his power. You may give the gospel to dozens, hundreds of people over the course of your life. It is God's power that will call them to salvation. Fishing for men is an invitation to failure, perhaps. Rejection, for sure. Weariness, guaranteed. Why do so many of us struggle with evangelism? Because it's hard. It's hard. It's not easy, is it? It's hard. And then there are hard losses. There are losses here vocationally and relationally. They leave their livelihood. They leave their father. Jesus did not shy away from the relational impact of the gospel. Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Later in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, he says it this way. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. These are significant losses that they are experiencing. They are significant losses that we experience. Some of you have felt this very acutely in your life. The losses are so significant that Jesus, as he made this call, this claim on people's soul, he actually said this, count the cost. He doesn't hide it. He wasn't fine print. Count the cost before you decide to follow me. Because it will be costly. It is a hard path. How hard is it? Impossible. On your own. So, <clears throat> when I was growing up in church, I had this misconception about pastors. <clears throat> I really respected my pastor. Um, I, I think his first name was Benjamin. But we didn't know him as Benjamin. It was B. He was one of those guys, you know, first initial just B with a period. B. Loy Womack. I love this man, respected this man. He baptized me, uh, discipled me, and loved on me and my family. I love this guy, B. Lloyd Womack. And I just thought, man, he was the stuff, right? I heard him preach. I, I heard him teach. Uh, 
Uh, most of you know I grew up Pentecostal, so we did the foot washing service, right? That was, that was New Year's. We had foot washing. He washed my feet. I, I felt very uh, blessed and humiliated at the same time as a small boy because um, despite what my parents said, I didn't always bend down and wash my feet in the shower, so who knows how nasty those feet were. Um, and so be like, woman. And so I had this perception, not because of him, but my perception going to the church, I had the perception that there would come a point in my Christian journey where it got easy. Like I just did. I thought like I'll, I'll maybe, maybe one day I'm going to grow up and, and it's going to be easy to open my Bible every day and read it. It's going to be easy to pray. It's going to be easy to share the gospel. It's going to be easy to run from sin. It's going to be easy to not lie. It's going to be easy to not want to steal. It's going to be easy to not get angry at the fools I have to do life with, right? It's, it's going to be easy. And at some point along the way, I made this decision. By God's grace, if I'm ever a pastor, I'm just going to be honest with it. It ain't easy. So either B. Lloyd Womack was a whole different kind of Christian than I am. Or I never understood what it was like to do life in the flesh while you love and follow Jesus. And are there days when your heart's just hungry for worship time and reading the word? Yes. Yes, there are. It's a delight. And is your soul infused by his grace and his strength? Yes. Absolutely. Is my heart just hungry for him sometimes? Yes. And are there other times that it feels like reading the word is like reading another textbook on leadership management for a class? Yes. And where it's a lot easier just being angry or resentful than gracious and forgiving. Yes. It's hard. It's impossibly hard on our own. And I want you to know that because I want you to understand if that's your experience in following Jesus, you're not alone and you're not broke. You're normal. Number one. And number two, there is a way to process that and still do life in a way that glorifies God. And so how do we do that? Because it's not just the hardest path. It is also the easy path. Jesus does not just describe the path as hard. He also says things like this, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Really? <laughs> he says this, whatever you ask in my name will be given you. He looks with compassion on those who have no shepherd, not in frustration, but in compassion. He says, I will give you rest. For those that have lost much, he makes promises like this. Truly, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. How do we hold these tensions together of this being an unbelievably hard path, but also an incredibly easy path? I, I make two calls to you this morning. Number one, get on path with the king. It's exhausting to try to preserve yourself all the time. It is exhausting to be the one who's attempting to check all the boxes, to do the bare minimum of moral behavior and uprightness and still hold back enough of your life so that you can ensure your personal happiness. 
It's exhausting to try to pay just enough taxes to save every little penny so you can spend more on you. It's exhausting to give just enough, just enough of my life to the cause of the kingdom. Just enough of my time, of my energy, of my resources to what Jesus wants. It's exhausting to try to so segment your life so you give the bare minimum to commit as little possible as little possible so you can still devote to what you think will really make you happy. That is an exhausting, wearying way to try to do life. You'd be like the one that Jesus describes as the one who may gain even the whole world and lose your own soul. Your attempts at self-preservation only assure you of eternal damnation and sorrow. Where are you with the king? The first thing I would say to you is the king is calling you and he's saying, get on the path with me. You don't know him this morning that way. I call to you to get on path with the king. I call you to recognize the heavy burden, the unrelenting crushing weight of your sinfulness and come to the one who is the burden lifting savior of your soul. Then it is a lie that you think your life, your way is the easy best way. While the path of following Jesus is hard, your path ends in destruction. And so the first thing I would say to you is exactly what Jesus says, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand and follow him. He has a mission and a plan for you. But the second thing I would say to you this morning, if you know him and you're on journey with him, is embrace the strength of the king. Life is hard. The best the loss can do is describe it like McCartney and Lennon do, that it's like a long and winding road of mingled sorrow and hope. Both those that are lost and those that are saved will rejoice and suffer in this world. The lost and saved will both have poverty and wealth. The lost and saved will spend and be spent, but only one of them will walk that hard road in strength that isn't theirs. Only one of them will finish the road and walk into glory, inheritance, and restoration. Only one of them will experience the life-giving sweet strength of the Holy Spirit to soothe anxiety, to calm fears, to fill with strength that they don't have. Only one of them will walk a journey with the king who assures them that they are on mission for something much bigger than themselves. Only one of them will hear the glorious words at the end. Well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into my rest. What makes it unbelievably easy? Maybe the best way I could describe it is like a little boy walking in a very dark and frightening place terrifying the kind of place that makes your heart rate elevate and your breathing become shallow and labored and he doesn't know how he could take even the next step forward it's so hard and scary And he reaches out his hand, and there beside him is his father 
who he views just like a superman of strength because that's how little boys view good dads. And he reaches up and his father holds his hand and immediately, immediately, he is infused with strength and power and courage from his dad. And though the path on its appearance does not look any brighter or easier, he is able to take every step forward because he has now been infused with the strength and the power of his father. When we walk the hard path as believers, what makes it easy What makes the yoke easy and the burden light is it is his power in us coming out of us. And if you walk with Jesus long enough, you are going to go through some very dark valleys that are like the shadow of death. You will be surrounded by enemies. And if you walk with Jesus long enough, you will come through those valleys and you will look back and you will suddenly perceive it in a different way because you will recognize that the only way you came through that season, through that valley, was because you came through on the strength of the king. And there will come moments where... Where in the midst of your enemies, you will sit down and he will prepare a table for you in the presence of your enemies. And he will give rest to your weary soul. Because he makes the hard path easy. I call you to the king. And I ask you where you are at on your journey with him. Because following the king is the hardest thing and the easiest thing you can ever do. But it is also the best thing you could ever do.